0: It's
1: about a pressure.
0: It's about a roar. We're still here, I'm pleased to say, with Gary Jacques, the uh, legendary and renowned Viberlite promoter. Uh, He's talked about how he started off the event with help from Mr. Majika and others and how he started those first few events. But I think it's time to ask him a little bit more about some of the biggest and best raves he's ever put on, some of the times where it went wrong. And, of course, we need to talk to him about what he's up to these days. Uh, Hello, Mr. Jacques. How are you doing?
1: Fine,
0: thank you. Uh, so let's continue this. Uh, you've talked about those early stages, and it, and it was a hobby. Uh, it was an enjoyable hobby, but it did eventually become a job for you. Talk us about how you progressed through the Fantasia. I mean, it, it sounded like you, even though it was a hobby, you went pretty full on, uh, and it was probably inevitable that it was eventually going to become a business
1: rather than a hobby. It was a hobby, but it was a hobby for a very short event. By the third event, um, my accountant was saying, you can't have a hobby turning this sort of money over. <laughs> a hobby. Well, that's a, a
0: nice. That's a nice position to be in, isn't it? I wish that's I could a, say the same about Raw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, eh?
0: <laughs> uh, one day, one
1: day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you say you you can't have this sort of event. I mean, what set the vibe like like I say was the, the initial meeting with myself, Martin, Majika, and Mongoose, and it all come about from that. There was only two of us that was ever going to put the money in. myself and Martin. Um, we came up with a concept. Majika gave us the um, the insight into the adrenaline boys, the promote uh, to design the flyers the way that we wanted in design in the our concept that we had and develop that. But from that, the other thing that we did was one of the first promoters to do, which also stuck out. Um, which catapulted into thing as a raver. When you come out of a rave, your ears are buzzing. You get back in the car, you drive home, or you your ears the ringing of the rave. To um, have a a set that you just listen to, you wait for the tape packs to come out a week later. But you know, we invested heavily in uh, some recording equipment, and we, from the very first event, you could buy that DJ set before. So you went home with the favourite DJ set. Whose idea was that? It was mine as a raver. That's what I was missing as a raver. You know, it's like I can't wait a week for a a, a tape pack to come out (laughs) or a tape to come out. I want to go home and I want to listen to that set that I've just listened to. You know what I mean? It was like it was like again, that had never been done before.
0: I bought one at at Fantasy Island in two thousand and two. I think it was the Brisk set on the New Year's Eve. Um I will say the quality wasn't great, <laughs> but it was nice to have, have that, have it straight away.
1: It wasn't, it wasn't great. It, we had hundreds and hundreds of problems. We had invested heavily in master tapes, which was real metal, metal to metal that uh, tapes that, that we um, then put into a machine and then we'd copy three or four copies. And then we had an add a machine that copies seven copies in, in 11 copies and went up to 20-odd copies at a time. Um, But that was done from a metal tape to a metal tape. Um, We had a backup, which was a adapt that recorded everything digitally. Um, But the fact that you got that set on the night home and you paid a fiver for it or something like that, but you got it as you walked out, so you'd listen to 10 hours of music and you could pick and choose the three or four tapes if you have got any money left in your pocket by the end of the night and it was an instant hit it was an instant hit you know so whereas the um, larger events was getting their tape packs you know the doubles there were doubles they were, when first started off it was single takes then it went to double packs uh, uh, they was getting them in the shops about two weeks after the event literally you buy mine at the event and then Saturday morning anything we didn't sell was took down to the shop in Mansfield and they'd sell them the virtually the day after the event so, uh, the shot the event finished at eight o'clock and at nine o'clock all the unsold tape wow. was in, on sale in the in the shop Great it was job. queuing out the door for people that had been either to the event or that was hadn't been to the event but wanted to hear the set from literally two hours ago <laughs> so it was a so that changed the way that we decided to run vibe light unnecessarily because it meant we could put more into the parties we could it allowed us to use the ticket money to use as promotions and to produce production and to fulfill the things that we couldn't do because we was actually earning the money from the tape machines and the and the merchandise and the, and the by the third event i think we'd got a t-shirt on you know uh uh the, the the logo by the second event the logo had been born to be quite honest with you um the logo just came to me from, to be honest, it was a device like on television.
0: Did you, know, you know, did the, they never have any problems with them in
1: terms of copyright? Yeah. Did get a letter from Craft um <laughs> at some point. Well, didn't you also I call your
0: promotions company Crafty Promotions?
1: Yeah, it was all part of it. It was all know, nicked, basically. <laughs> It was it was an inspiration on everything <laughs> it was it, it, don't forget there was all sorts of things going on there was cheesy quavers and there was all sorts of things that you know uh, washing powders were being used you know this was just a take it was just in the moment this was what was happening we was imitating things around us but nothing more fitted this product and this brand than the vibe alike light vibes it was getting you know very drum and bassy around the scene we were still playing three styles of music within the venues you know uh and, and 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 for djs coming up you know like um kenny ken for instance i'll never forget his face um he came up um and he played at venue 44 before uh as a as as, as a Zest dj um but when he came up to Viberlite and the the venue was rammed, packed solid, and um, he played after Lenny D. <laughs> now I don't know if you know Lenny D., but at that time he was probably known as one of the hardest DJs in the world, right? An American. I guy. think he's still pretty hard, to be honest. Yeah, he's pretty <laughs> hard. <laughs> so the dance floor didn't move. Do you know what I mean? We were so lucky that the people that was coming to the early ravers was there for the moment. Whatever you threw at them, they didn't move. Do you know what I mean? This is you know, the second, third, fourth event or something like that. The Lenny D one sticks in my mind really a lot because the face on Kenny Ken, when he, he came through the door, you came through the back of the venue, so you've seen the whole production. It was that first impression. He was behind all the ravers. All the ravers were facing one way. They were facing the laser. They were looking at the production. They were looking at all the things that we'd hung up from the roofs. It was—it was like mind blowing. You know what I mean? But by the time Lenny, uh, uh, Kenny, Ken had walked from the back door right to the front and got up onto the stage, he was physically trembling. <laughs> Just do your stuff. Just play what you've been played to play. Just do what you do. He was so nervous. He never moved. The dance floor stayed the same and just went straight into a Kenny Ken set, you know, a jump up drum and bass. Nice. Straight from like a 250 beats or 200 beats per minute into that. And it blew his mind. Mm. So it, was, it wasn't just ravers talking about it. It was artists. You know, artists were talking. You go there, you get paid first. You know, fucking it right. hell, it's not heard of. You know, it's like... Relaxed, yeah, you know, and, and you treated artists, you know, if they wanted water, they wanted drinks, or you know, they could have alcohol if they sat in a certain position because we weren't allowed to do alcohol. It's about of pressure, it's about
0: raw. It was obviously incredibly successful as an event both among ravers and artists what then in your mind over the years was the was the best rave that you put on and why and you did it in 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 a whole
1: range of different places Uh, i think by the third event the carl cox concept um when bearing in mind we opened at 10 o'clock and we danced till eight o'clock um which was a good 10 hours of completely dancing the carl cox concept we ended the night on easy groove seven till eight right. and at eight o'clock there was nobody leaving mm-hmm. you know it was gen there was nobody sat down everybody was dancing it was easy groove a hard dj not as hard as lenny d but he was hard dj he was renowned for being hard And nobody left. Eight o'clock. Just nobody wanted to go anywhere. And again, uh, this is the third event. Um, Private Members Club, we announced at eight o'clock, we stayed up until (laughs) ten.
0: I mean, the idea of that now makes me feel physically sick. (laughs) (laughs) Me too.
1: (laughs) But, you know, you can't throw people out when you've got a full dance floor. They was not going to go anywhere. We was a pro- we could not have done it if we was a licensed venue. We were a private men members club. We set the rules and regulations as long as we adhered to those rules and regulations, and we stuck rigidly to those. And it was about letting people through the doors and stuff. Uh, it had to be members. It was a strict rule. Be, it had to be a member. Uh, at the time, we didn't realise that it was building this database up of all people, you know, uh, that's come that that been to the venue. Uh, which was a huge advantage to us when, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. when we left yeah. the new 44, eventually. So I would say the Carl Cox Concept Event 3 was one of my most memorable experiences, and the fact that we went on till 10 o'clock was probably a good one. We then went on to do artists' birthday parties and put parties on for them, the Carl Cox birthday, the uh, Slipmats birthday. Where we let the artists choose the entire lineup themselves, you know, it's about them wanted what they wanted for a party. Um, those events sold out. And, and don't forget, we're not talking online tickets. You had to go and physically buy a ticket from a shop. Within two days, wow! You know, yeah, we was ringing shops up to get tickets back because it sold out so quick. There was, it, it, you know, you would put your tickets out on Thursday, by Saturday, everybody, it sold out. Wow, it sold out. You know, so you're manning the phones, listening to everybody coming on to become members. you was getting members coming from Bradford and Leeds and Yorkshire and Lincolnshire and Skegness, and you know, we was only printing ten thousand flyers for the events You know, but by the um, um, uh, no online promotions back then, it was flyers it was word of mouth. You know, it was. Um, uh, I think by the Carcox concert, we didn't ha- we handed less than two thousand flyers out. But we handed them out at the end of every night so by the second event you'd got the third flyer and so people was waiting for the tickets to come out for that event you know so as soon as it as soon as they got the flyer the tickets was in the shops so as the event finished on uh, in in october i think it was september october november we did a as the october event finished you got the flyer and by the time we took the tapes in the shop the tickets were ready for the carl cox concept so by By Monday, the whole the whole tickets had sold out. Wow! A month in advance.
0: So, I mean, you did uh, you started at Venue Forty Four, but you did uh, expand out. And I know that you've said when we've spoken on the phone before that you never wanted to go and sort of rival in a way those you know super mega big raves. You did do some pretty mega big raves, including Fantasy Island is one. And I mean, tell us about the logistics behind putting on an event of that magnitude it must have been insane
1: well we went from vibe like when it, it's essentially closed down we was it was a different type of scene up in the up in the midlands do you know it wasn't you know we all come from the rave era it was bogey and gary bangham from pleasure dome it was going over to them we it was our like sister event if you like although they started up before us there was Stuart from Destruction, and then later on, Paula, with the Uprising. I don't think it was called Uprising at the start, but he was doing a Thursday night when we was doing a Friday. He was getting 800 people and on a Thursday night. It was all sorts of things, you know, um, kicking off. So um, I've lost my train of thought there, sorry. <laughs> it's all
0: right. I just talk, we, I'm talking about moving to Fantasy Island, because that was one of the... Right. So, no, yeah, no,
1: we didn't move to Fantasy Island it, first. We went to Bradford, Windsor Baths, and because... Um, we was approached by the guy that owned the record shop in there called The Disc at the time. And he was one of our biggest tape pack sellers outside our Nottingham region. You know, he was saying, whatever you put in the shop, we, we, we sell, basically. Um, We've got a venue for you. would like to come and look at it. And we was desperate for a venue. We had, a done, we had done Fantasy Island. Um, Fantasy Island came about um, from the Pleasure Dome it was quite a big feat to pull off. They'd moved from uh, the little pubs on the on the on the sidewalk of Skegness to that big cap dome. It was a natural progression. It was a time when the scene was splitting, and it had been pigeonholed. And it was a time when we could split the scene, if you like, but um, have different styles of arenas. That, so that if you, were, if you were fully into drum and by this time, people was moving more into drum and bass. And uh, by the end of Venue 44, we'd done a vice versa. So if hardcore was playing upstairs, drum and bass was downstairs, then drum and bass upstairs is hardcore downstairs. So you always got what you wanted. So as a raver, we understood that people's music tastes and that was changing. You know, we'd always kept him with a house scene from Renaissance. We'd always kept him from hop to chop. We understood. The, what people wanted or what people so in liked. a
0: way you in a way your hand was forced into going into these big multi-arena events just because the way there was a the natural music, progression the music scene you know, was going
1: it, it's evolved it was evolved it, it, you can't control you couldn't control this thing you know it, it evolved you just you you've seen a gap in the market you know we was probably one of the first people to do a multi-multi arena event indoor multi-arena event Fantasy Island gave us that, you know. It was it was one of the I think the first Fantasy Island was ninety six, I think. Ultimate New Year's Eve party, and uh, it was unheard of. It was unheard of to, to do nine. I think it was nine arenas, but and the venue itself. Been, you was, must have been I bricking, mean, bricking that.
0: I mean, what a lot of layout that is. Well, not I wasn't really bricking it.
1: <laughs> I was in a position to uh, know what I was talking about and know what the DJs wanted. And uh, it was Gary and Bogey that funded it, the first original Fantasy Island. I I don't know what other backers they had in in there. And I come on as a consultant, and I hosted arenas. And by that time, I'd got... um, Tomorrow's World had been set up which was a techno night which we'd seen a gap which was the third event that we put on at Venue 44. So we built up a, a, we'd seen a gap in the market. No one was doing techno, no one was doing trance. It was being played uh, at the Elter Skelters and the Dreamscapes but no one was doing it in like a club and type environment. So we, you know, if we'd got we have got Rewind, which was an old-school night that we banged in as well. So when you come to do Fantasy Island, we've got Vibe Light, Tomorrow's World, Rewind. You've got your Hot to Trot Boys. You've got your Creme de la Creme. You've got your Pleasure Domes. We've got six or seven arenas between us anyway. Do you know what I mean? It was like... So we could specialise in those fields with artists and DJs that specialise in those fields, if you know what I mean. So you, you would put in the same production value on. It cost nine separate arenas, um, but held that small, you know, I think the biggest room was 3,000, 4,500, was in the Dome, which was obviously going to be the Pleasure Dome Vibe Light Arena because that was our biggest thing. But your drum and bass room would be 1,800. Um, your house room would be 1,000 or something like that. Um, it was a massive achievement. It was a massive achievement. But... To, one of the things that Viberlite was renowned for was the venues that he chose you know, we Venue 44 was it? it was an amazing place to be the artists that performed there told you that you know what I mean, the likes of Carl Cox he wants to do the Carl Cox concept there Windsor Baths was another one it was, you know Ven- Fantasy Islands an indoor theme park I don't know if you know it, you, Well, you have being yourself you know what it's like, it's like it's like having Raveol and Towers. You know, the production yeah. was already there. You know, it's like the the production was the venue. You know what I mean? The fact that it got roller coasters. right in a way, through. did
0: that make it a little bit easier for you because you
1: knew you already? I mean, it already looks pretty spectacular. It looks pretty spectacular. You know that that first event we did, I think we absolute. Um, Spent an absolute arm and a leg on it. Uh, you know, we, we, that 80-foot pyramid that's the, the centre dome, and you've got the water slides in the middle of it coming down, and you've got the hot air balloons and the roller coaster rides on the outside and everything like that. That was all going off while the rave was happening. Do you know what I mean? It's like it was purposely built. It was theme park. It was a, you know, and it was to put a rave on there, it was like, gee, yeah, I want to do it. I don't care how much. You know, I don't care if you don't pay me. I just want to put an event on. It's like, you know, just let's get on with it. Let's do it, so to speak. Well, we
0: hope you're enjoying today's episode of Raw and that's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on. We're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free, taking no wages at this project to create this podcast and it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs. Hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that thanks to your ongoing donations, we've managed to improve our equipment. And I'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs, which is absolutely great news. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to any of you who've donated. Uh, We've got big, big plans for the future. But we aren't going to be able to do it without your support. So if you want us to keep making Raw, you're going to need to keep on funding Raw. And that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favourite rave artists from the 90s. So if you can spare anything at all, no matter how big or how small, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. That URL again is gofundme.com dot com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you hope you're enjoying it so guy you've talked about a lot of your early events and some of the biggest ones. Uh, let's talk about some of the artists you book because that's what everyone really wants to know about. They all want to know who's a really great person and who's a bit of a shit, right? So, uh, this is <laughs> this is where you might, <laughs> this is where you might come into your own. Um which artists for you and your crowd always went down well?
1: Let, well, let's start with Majika. <laughs> can't take it from Majika he was a crowd pleaser he knew what to do and he still does to this day you know what I mean but as a person complete twat <laughs> you know and I'm uh, saying I
0: mean, he will be listening to this so uh, we should probably I'm, I'm sure out. he was I, I think he's alright so there you go We've got in the my back.
1: opinion my opinion right? Oh, dealing with him as a raver he was excellent he controlled the crowd. Dealing with him as an artist, and I hadn't seen this until I became a promoter. So it was really hard to understand. And, you know, it's I think it's Majika's story to tell I hope one day that you get him on. Yeah, I sure. think he's
0: gonna c think he's gonna come on fairly soon. I'm, I'm sure
1: it. he's got plenty and of
0: stories he, to tell. And I suspect I suspect having watched this, he'll call you a twat. So there you go.
1: <laughs> like I say. I'm hoping that what happens with this podcast is that all the DJs and artists that have got grievances between themselves can air this out. But understand, it's not about an individual artist. It's not about me as a promoter. It's about the part that Vivalight played. It's about the part that Majika played. It's about the part that Dreamscape played. It's about the part that world dance played it's about the part that Shelley's played it's about the part that all these amnesia houses and fantasias and and the ravers played we all created this scene that's lasted 30 years if this platform can allow us to come together and air these grievances out but not show any malice then that's why i'm doing this interview to hopefully i i was i was you know didn't want to do the interview, but this is why I've done this interview. You know, I, you know, p- people have got grievances, do you know what I mean? And, and, and there was, at the time, there was really important. You'll go on to hear about the grievance that I had with other promoters. I mean, it pissed me off. You know what I mean? It was like, artists pissed me off. If I book a DJ over the phone and I agree a fee with the DJ over the phone, then he turns up at the venue and i give him his money before he goes on and he says to me um i'm 350 pound now and i went well when i booked you you was 150 pound he went well yeah but that was like two months ago i'm I'm a much more high profile dj so how do you deal with that as i i you know i have respect for this guy as a as a raver but as a promoter my word was my bond, you know what I mean? That's what i come to understand. So how, how did I deal with that? I'd say, okay, you're on the flyer. You're playing at that set time. We agreed £150, right? You're telling me you're not going to play unless you get 350 You've got two options. You either take the 150 and you go home, right? And I'll tell the Ravers what's happened, right? Or you go and play your set. And then the next time I book you... We Agree a price and we'll pay that, you know. So I got a sort of no, I I had to toughen up. Did anybody go home? I had to toughen up really quickly, you know what I mean? It's like, anybody,
0: did anybody go, All right, I'll take the money and go home then and I'll take my chances.
1: Well, no, okay, (laughs) so it worked, it worked, so it worked, you know. They, but don't, I'm not holding that against them. They was naive, you know. What I mean, they was new artists to the scene. They was breaking into the scene, you know. Um, understanding, you know, by understanding DJs career paths, and um, everybody wanted something different from the rave scene. You know, what I mean, artists like um, wanted. It checked, you wear Flux, how it turned his life around. You heard MCMC, how it turned his life around. It turned people, everyday people's lives around. So it gave them something to look forward to, to look after. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was personal to those people. So people, people wanted different things out of it, isn't it? It's what you wanted out of it. And Majika from the offset was really good at selling himself if you know what i mean he was um well i mean whether you, sports... like Magique, whether you like
0: whether you like majika or not as Listen, a person no, and, and as a person he still continues to do that he is an incredible uh um, public publicist MC. you know he's an incredible publicist as well and he's a good businessman 100% so, agree. you know it uh, just because you don't you know you might not one might not like someone's personality you can still give them respect in yeah. other ways yeah
1: yeah uh, the the it came to head with me and Majika quite early on. I think if I'm looking back through the flyers, I think by 1994, Majika had been dropped off our rider of Light flyers. Right. And, um... Why? Like I say, it's it's Majika's story to tell. Um, Why did but, you drop him off the flyers? Uh, Majika dealt with issues with his culture and his family. Do you know what I mean? That Like I say, that's Majika's story to tell, you know. Um he came from a very difficult background his parents want him to be a doctor or a lawyer or a solicitor and he wants to be this rave mc promoter and he could see what he wants to be so he he, he had uh, he, he had his own challenges let's put it that way and he hung on to the rave scene uh and it was all his answers he he wanted he, he wanted it he could be someone he could make something of himself you know and and fair play to him he was very good at doing that the uh There was a lot of things that led up to this, but the clincher was at the Pleasure Dome, one event. And Majika was our resident at the time. And I was stood um, in there. Murray was there from Dreamscape. The Adrenaline Boys was there. And all of a sudden, Majika just grabbed the microphone. And as a raver, to stop a rave, was like it was an undone thing you know what i mean and someone had called him in the thingy that's not right it should never have happened but as an artist to stop a rave when as a raver you've lived all week you've had a shit week at work or you've had a shit week you're just there for the moment to take on that stopping on a rave and take on erase this issue that should never have happened where it's like as a rave it's just everyone's just stood around going what the hell you know what's what's that got to do with now but wearing my promoter's hat that could happen at vibe i wasn't in control of that that could happen at any point and i think that was the clincher deal to the breakup of me and majika alongside loads of other things you know what i mean so but majika's gone on to be an artist and always will be I have we get, never, when we get, doubted his talent. Don't get well,
0: me when honest. we get him on, Gary, I'll ask him about that racist incident because, I, you know what, I, I, look, I'm not a promoter. Yeah. I've never done that. But if yeah. someone, I like, if someone it's not going to happen, but, you know, if I felt I'd been abused in the worst kind of way, I don't know how I'd deal with it. And I don't necessarily know. No, that I, I, would, I don't. I don't you necessarily don't, know that I would judge someone on how they dealt with it, but yeah you know I, it's difficult to know unless you were there at the time and you were that person it was a decision
1: made in the moment right whether i was right or wrong is a yeah. completely different story right. there was other things that were personal yeah. to myself and Majika leading up to that but that was the clincher i think well that um, must have whether, been must have whether been it was right or wrong
0: it must have been difficult because he was a popular uh, mc as well for you so you're like well you know you have got to balance it with you know how much you enjoy that you know dealing yeah. with that person and how, and what they bring to the rave who else um did uh, did you find was a bit of a pain we'll go on to the people who were a dream in a, sh- in a second but who else did you find was a bit of a pain uh,
1: i didn't really find um the hawk hard- i mean Easy Groove was a bit of a pain. You turn up at the venue. Uh, the very first time he turned turn up, that that third event, for instance, he turned up with a crew of about 15 or 20 people, none of them members. I could have got them I in. suspect
0: he, he refused have, to play. Ribs might have been one of them because uh, we did an interview with Ribs recently. He lived with Easy Groove at that oh. point and they used to just travel around the country with him, just being his sort of... Crew at MCs. so I wouldn't have been surprised if Ribs was moving.
1: <laughs> it, it, it may have been, uh, you know, but as a private members club, you not right. members they couldn't get in, you know, if right. they're artists, you can sign a... people up on the night. Yeah. No, you, you had to be 24 hours in advance. That right, was one right, of the rules right, and right, regulations. Right. So you couldn't, I couldn't get his crew in. He didn't understand it. It's never been heard of. Everybody was licensed. Right. So I had to take him to one side. I had to explain this to him, you know. And then we, had, we got members that signed them in at the time. So we eventually got them in. But it was a long process. Do you know what I mean? He was refusing to play his set and then went on to play till, like, half past eight and seven, you know, yeah, and that, that night sort of thing. But... I didn't really have trouble with artists. I appreciated where that people wanted other things out the rave scene. Do you know what I mean? I didn't really want it to be a business, but it, by you know by the time I left Venue Forty Four, it was definitely a business. You know, by the third, fourth event, it was. How definitely... did that
0: impact upon your enjoyment of it all? Uh,
1: it impacted. You, you had to understand as a, as a rave promoter, you as a responsible for everybody in that venue. So you couldn't be a raver, so to speak. You was, um, my enjoyment died. I couldn't dance on the dance floor without somebody coming up and shaking my hand every five minutes. So I, I lost that capacity. So my job was to make sure that everybody was having the best time all the time, you know, because
0: well, I mean? I've spoken to a few people in the past and they, and they say, I, well, in fact, I read an interview with Doc Scott as well, who said this, he said, I, uh, he started putting on some events more recently, but historically had never wanted to because he's always seen promoters and it doesn't matter if it's a banging night they've made loads of money they always look stressed and miserable
1: <laughs> yeah um there's a massive roller coaster run you know I mean when we're do vibe light it's every month so' thinking about the stress that we was putting ourselves under back then we'd have an event on the Friday the tape packs was uh, the tape packs eventually going up to five and six packs. So we'd have, we'd have someone come down and collect the masters after the night. Um, we'd have the single tapes ready for sale on the night, but the masters would go off to be produced. Uh, they would be produced and then uh, on body printing and everything like that, they'd be coming back to us on a Tuesday, Wednesday, they'd be packed on a Thursday uh, and in the shops for a Thursday, like a four pack or a six pack. This was like, so you just done a 10 hour event You'd done, you know. And back then, we did Friday nights, and then we'd have a pleasure, uh, a hot trot on a Saturday, you know. And so you'd have Monday off. You, you, you was knackered. You was doing forty-eight hour shifts, you know, and then going to bed for six hours and coming back in and doing another twenty-four hour shifts. We was putting ourselves under a lot without any a gear or anything. This was naturally a working day, you know. It was hard, hard graft, and it was a skeleton of people. It was Glennis and Dave and myself basically that was packing these tapes and and we yeah we had 365 shops at one point one for every day of the year you know it was like it was, an, it was that, that was the, the merchandise side of it was much bigger than the actual event you know he was getting out to people were you making more money from
0: the merchandise from the events
1: oh certainly yes i think really the money came from it yeah wow yeah. and then when we announced the jacket the jacket was just an instant success so well, that um, bomber
0: jacket's gone down in history. We've had quite a few people asking us if you'd are ever if you ever do a re-release because, at the moment, with this 90s rave revival that we're going through, quite clear, you can see it, I can see it, we can all see it. They'd, say, they'd, do, they'd sell rather well.
1: that's <laughs> an ongoing issue that <laughs> I'm fighting at the moment. But, yeah, I own the design. I own the rights to all that. So, yeah, I, I can do that. And I suppose if there is enough demand for it, then... Maybe, but if anyone's watching,
0: they can comment below, right? In 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 the yeah, yeah, comment below. This 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 will be the this will be the test for you. Uh, A, if anyone's fucking watching it and paying attention, but B, if uh, people do want the rave jackets, comment below this, and then Gary will know whether there's at least a few people that might might buy them in the future. So
1: the whole thing about that rave jacket was, you know, the other promoters was doing those, but they were doing embroidery or they was doing print on jackets that. That logo, if you've still got one of those jackets, and loads of people have still got those jackets, that lo- the jacket would drop away from that logo. Do you know, we spent, we once we, that logo was decided upon, we actually spent, like back then I think it was about £1,800 pounds to get the embroidery plate made. Well, that's a big investment to make, but going from the tape sales and what we'd produced from the tape sales, we knew that merchandising was the right way that's where we earned the money from which allowed our events or the ticket money to go into the events to put, allow the production you know so when you're going on to your big licensed events there's a lot more to deal with these are our two key points that you know, the production at the events every event being different every lineup being different uh and the, and the merchandise so going on and doing a big Fantasia style event or cast on internures, licensing issues, and there was all those sort of which absorbed into your time. So we didn't have that team to do that. Do you know what I mean? We didn't have the team to do that at all. So, yeah, artists. I remember saying to a house DJ once, oh, as a laugh and a joke. Oh, I much prefer you on the radio. He, <laughs> he, said, he said, why? I said, because I can turn the fucker off. <laughs> it was a house
0: so, dj and, and which ones were a dream to deal with then who were the nicest
1: guys in the scene i think again in my opinion no one really um no one ever came across as unnice to deal with we had um we never threw anybody we threw one person out uh um which was goldie at fantasy island um Goldie was a massive artist in his own right. He did a fancy island event. Something happened. Someone was looking at his girl. Something happened. We had to throw him out. But we, you know, the security had to throw him out. We had to evict him from the venue. And that's the only sort of artist where I really had really any problems with. And um, I, I just, I got to myself if someone gave me a hard time or an attitude or something like that, then they just wasn't going to get booked but i didn't want to fall into the trap of the events all looking the same you know when mickey linus was about and i can't remember the name of his events for the life of me um but it had gone very all drum and bass orientated you know what i mean it had gone that way we we wanted every lineup to be the same. there was such an array of artists out there that was coming through you know your Ixy was breaking through your you know your, mc Sharky was breaking through he wanted to become a dj he played his first ever set at vibe like we gave him that break uh, we allowed artists to develop themselves you know we pulled mcmc up from london we had this um fantastic artist that went from drum and bass into into happy hardcore so he fitted right in with what we was trying to achieve you know what i mean it's a it's, it was just the way that whole things evolved really quickly. Do you know what I mean? It's like...
0: Were there any DJs... All right, so you didn't necessarily not get on with them. Did any just fall flat and you thought, uh, well, they're not for us and we're not
1: going to book them again? Uh, no, not really. It, 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 my high The highlight was book, booking DJs when a DJ didn't show up later on, when DJs didn't show up, and was booking an unknown DJ, you know, um, bearing in mind, we'd be getting tapes sent into us as promoters for DJs. I've got some, I had some serious demos sent in by, that have now become massive DJs in their own right. And I have their the tapes and their bios and what they used to be. And some of them are quite funny. You know what I mean? It's like, Um, what they wanted to achieve back then and what they've become is totally different to what they wanted to achieve and and seeing that. Um, We ended up setting up um, a platform because we couldn't deal with so many tapes and CDs coming into us back then. We set up the Crafty Radio Station to allow DJs, up-and-coming DJs, to perform. So they built up a base around the DJs online when this had come back. This was, again, when I come back from Australia, I think. So, you know, this is after 98. I went to Australia in 98 bearing in mind what people don't understand is as i mentioned going back to when venue 44 was raided um, that court case was it was probably 92 when it got raided I think the um, court case went on and on and on and they were trying to find all this drug dealer's money and etc etc they couldn't find it, they prosecuted Dorman, Dorman went to prison for it they tried to get the managers involved and the owners of the building involved, and by '94 I was the back end of that chain because I'd come in. The club was about to close, and I revitalised this club with, you know, with um, block book block block booking it, and then having Hot to Trot come in, uh, getting Hot to Trot to come in, starting the Tomorrow's World nights. So the police and the authorities were looking for all this missing money that supposedly these drug dealers had, had, had made. So I became under a tax investigation from sort of 93 to 94, well, from 94 onwards, really. And while ever I was running Viable and Fancy Island, um, it didn't really bother me at first, but it got more and more aggressive. I had to have chartered accountants. I was dealing with... Um, interviews they was trying to find money I had to declare everything that I'd made I had to go through all my paperwork and all my book work and and lay this out so I was completely up front with everything and the authorities but that weighed on me and that weighed on me right through the whole process of Bibleite even through Fantasy Island events and I think it really got to me probably before i went to australia the, the guys that was coming over from lincoln had said to me that they was um, going to australia for a trip out to australia and i just thought you know what fuck it i'm going to go there i'm going to have a few, bit of time out and go there and it was uh, the the court case the 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 um, authorities had finished with me we agreed to pay a certain amount of tax that was that they they did, discovered that we hadn't paid etc etc uh and the case was over, and it, I hadn't realised at the time how much pressure that that was putting under me, uh, and it just built and built and built and built, um, and, and until some days you know you was you was you couldn't think anything else. You're thinking, "Well, I can't do anymore. You've got everything off me," uh, and and when that sort of ended, the uh, venue forty four had closed. Windows, you know it it had moved on so many chapters. Uh, and it was such a release the scene had started taking a a much different approach to it you know it had, it had evolved into something that was like I say uncontrollable really um so yeah that was that was um a, a big uh, a big no one really knows what, what was going on people close to me knew how much pressure that put on you but it didn't um one of the worst events I put on, for personal reasons, was probably the Corn Mill in Huddersfield. It was an unusual venue. We had to put marquees up. We had to do all sorts of things. It was just stress from one day to the other. But going back to the Fancy Island events was... You, you'd think they'd be the hardest events to put on because there was so much involved. But you had um, John Woodward, who owned Fantasy Island, and we'd walk around with him at an event, and we'd say, this room's gonna be the house room. We've got such and such a promoter that's gonna be in there. We'd have a single, we'd have a sound engineer and a lighting engineer for that individual room, who would report back to the central station, which was the ticket office, which was Gary and Bogie's place. Um, um, we'd have a, a sound engineer and a, a Lighting engineer for every event, for every room in that thing, so if anything went wrong, they reported it back. But to walk around a venue like Fantasy Island with John Woodward and say, "We want to take that uh, track out. We want to turn the, this this go kart track here into a rave cave. You know, what's that going to expand? And to take that up, it's going to cost five grand to take this out. It's going, to take, it's going to cost another three grand to put that back in. Okay, we'll do that. What about that ride?" Can we have that ride riding while it's going? Can we enter the water out there, make that another dance floor down there? You know, and yeah, anything's possible. And he'd walk round and he did be, Right, we need to put some steps down here. Um, and it just click his fingers and they'd be, and it'd join us building the steps. And he'd move around the corner and some metal work need to be done, or we need to put fire doors in it. And, and before you walked off, the work was started. It was like so instant, you know what I mean? It was a, the events was really easy to do, because it was just, the production side of it was the venue, you know, it just left us to doing things like making sure people queued in, being in mind when we did Fancy Island, towards the end, there was 16,000 people wow. never queued for more than 40 minutes, 40 minutes, no one queued for more than 40 minutes, unheard of, again, to this day, you, see, you know, you still queue for longer than that now, you queue for that now to get into Audi. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. To be honest, I suspect that our uh, s- what we accept in queuing has changed since the uh, yes. midnight <laughs> of the coronavirus. It's about a pressure, It's about
1: a raw.
0: Can I talk to you about some of your residents? Because you had Fergus, Rush, Peter Pan. They were your everlasting residents. Why?
1: Um, Rush, um became my partner from early on, um, from going back to the days of uh, Venus. Um, He was a DJ. He was an excellent DJ. He was an unspoken artist, really. He could mix from... um, like say from, he could mix. It was known as mixing oil to water, and the way he did it was un, unbelievable. He could go into a drum and bass. He went to Pandemonium once, and the Pandemonium boys, the promoters, it blew them away. It was really dark, and it was really drum and bass, drum, drum triangle. And within four records, I think he switched the entire dance floor to a happy hardcore vibe. And the promoters come up and the dance floor hadn't moved, you know, and it it, it never, ever been done. The promoters going, how have you done that? You know, it was just... And the residents played a huge part in the structure of the event. So if a DJ didn't turn up, you knew you had to have DJs that could play the style of the DJ that was going to fit in there. Bearing in mind, I built the whole night, like a DJ built his set, that... Having a resident that could fit into any one of them slots and play a techno set, play a drum and bass set, play a hardcore set, made the night flow. So you never lost that, you know, you never lost what you were trying to achieve from the outset, really. And Peter Pan and Rush was just... Peter Pan was a raver from Burton-on-Trent, come to Vibe we gave him a chance on the mic. And to be honest, they just clicked off straight away. They became a team. They became the top buzz of the North, if you like. You know, it was um, it was a it was a different different era. It was it was just uh, they they became residents to us. Um, they they understood what we need. Fergus again, Fergus jumped in on the second birthday when Carl Cox hadn't shown up for his uh, for his event. Own birthday. It was the second birthday, Babelite's second birthday. Oh, that not, not his
0: birthday, right? Fine, okay. No, no,
1: no, no. He, he turned up for his birthday. Okay, fine. That was the third event. <laughs> Um but by the this is how it changed from say, so, so Carl Cox's uh our third event, the concept, in ninety-three. By ninety-four, Carl had decided that his career wasn't the rave scene for him. Do you know what I mean? That's a big decision. How's he got then. on since then? Sorry? How's he got on since then? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <bless laughs> he made the right decision, didn't he? This is no, you know. You know I I have this this thing with Carl. He he was the ravers DJ. He had time for absolutely everybody. He got there early because he knew it would take him half an hour to get from the door to the DJ because everybody <laughs> wanted to shake his hands. He played to the crowd. He was knew his job. He was the three deck meister. He never he never moved, he never stopped moving. He was he was you know he was the he was the. Um, uh the first DJ that was interactive with the crowd he, he got off on what he was doing and the crowd picked up on that the crowd buzzed off on that in you know, he could have gone a long way, couldn't he? Really, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he still, uh, he still might. You never know, Carl. If never. you are listening to this, stick at what you're doing because you know one day you might make a success of it. It
1: was a hard decision, <laughs> you know. When he didn't turn up, it was up. He played at Doncaster. Warehouse that night? It was only down the road from us. The road it was covered in snow. It was a horrible night. I understood that Carl was trying to change his career. He was moving more into the stuff that he wanted to do as an artist and more of the oblique techno side of things, you know what I mean? And even though I was pissed off at the night, the fact that he did it at Viableite, and that was he made that decision after coming out of Doncaster, where I was, that's it, I'm finishing. I respected that, you know what I mean? It put me in an awkward position as a promoter, but I... I respected that, that for a man to make that decision when he was at the top of his game in this field, he'd obviously seen something that he thought he could achieve better in his career, and he and followed maybe, that path.
0: And maybe prefer, he no preferred the, maybe preferred the music as well. You know, you got yeah, to say, uh, with the way that, you know, the way that that sort of music that he was playing with, that, with the four beat yeah, let's be honest. That when we'll, we'll come to that. In a yeah. bit, let's be honest. A lot of it got rather shit, and he probably thought, "I don't like where this is going. I'm not in for this. I, that, I prefer exactly. that techno sound. I'm going to go and pursue that." And I think actually, as well, there's if you've got a business head on it, it's more accessible yeah. to more yeah. people. Therefore, there's going to be more money to be made, I suppose. So seems like a sensible. <laughs> That's a rather sensible uh, decision. I anyway, spoke
1: to, I spoke to Carl after the year 2000. I. And uh, when he came to VibeLite, right, on his Carl Cox birthday party, myself and Martin um, made him a VibeLite cake in the shape of the logo. And we had to take that was quite big at the time. And we made Carl in the VIP room. Uh, the venue, which we turned into a chill out room eventually, <laughs> so that there was no VIP rooms because people were just sitting in there and being VIPs that weren't there for the rave. So we turned it into a chill out room. But at the time, we made Carl Cox wear that take that T-shirt. Right, um, he wouldn't go out into the crowd with it. In fact, I think he did. I think he actually DJ'd a take that T-shirt. It <laughs> was so up for it. It was great. Amazing. You know what I mean. And then I thought one day I could always use that to get him to come back and do an old school set. So, <laughs> And I approached him after, uh, at Stoke University, I think, at Keele University, after the year 2000. And I approached him and I said, look, oh, Carl, I've got this photograph of you, you and take that T-shirt, you're, you're a massive DJ worldwide now. If I put this out to the media, or you can have the photographs if you come and do me an old school set. I'm doing in mind, it was... Back then, as a hardcore DJ, he was at the top of the game. He was £600. Most DJs, £150, £300. So when he moved over to the house, he could demand... I think
0: he might be a bit more expensive these days. Yeah, he
1: could demand £10,000, £15,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he could demand big money. So to say to him, come back and play for £600, otherwise I'm going to release this T-shirt, you in this take that T-shirt, we laughed. We joked about it. And then I said to him, listen, Carl, I know I'm asking a big favour here. Um, I don't know any other DJ in the entire world that's played two midnight sets on the year 2000. He played in Australia, a midnight set, and then threw, flew to Hawaii and played another midnight set on the year 2000. Wow. Can't get any bigger than that. That's, In my opinion, that's the biggest you can get. No one ever any, did that And again. he moved
0: to Mansfield to do a third. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... How could I expect him to come and play an old yeah. school game And he's achieved the, yeah, yeah. you know. Have, the, you still got the t- have you still got the T-shirt? Uh, the picture of him in the T-shirt? I have somewhere. It'll be my office in Mansfield somewhere. Should we tr-
0: I think we should try and dig that out. Uh, I mean, not even necessarily for this rave, but just to to put that out, I think that would be fun to see Carl Cox in a take yeah, that Yeah, I, I think
1: it will. I've definitely got it in Mansfield it's with <laughs> all the memorabilia from the early days that's over there. Um, definitely.
0: And and what about MCMC? Because we had him on the on on the podcast fairly recently, and he talked about Fiberlite and how much he loved Fiberlite. Seemed a weird uh, MC, perhaps, to have managed to convince to be a a resident at your place. How did you do that? Uh,
1: MC was really difficult to track down. Really difficult to track down. He was on was not on any agencies. He was going through that time when I understood I couldn't book him because nobody talked to me, nobody gave me his contact. And at the time when I listened to his interview, I now realised why, you know, the people was, you know, what had happened to him. So for me, I had to go down to London and uh, to go to one of the events he was at. And I had to wait till the end of the night to get hold of him, to speak to him to book him personally direct. And he says, well, who's doing your bookings? And he went, no one's doing my bookings, I'm doing my bookings. I went, well, I don't want to book you, I've got a number, I've got a no contact. I've been trying to book you for four or five months. I think he appeared in July '94 uh, because we were still negotiating here. His name didn't even appear on the flyer. He came as a surprise guest MC. So the Raves had got no idea what he was like. And the Ravers up north had no idea. He was a very southern... DJ, you know what I mean, he was and he crossed, when we went to see him, he crossed that border perfectly from drum and bass into hardcore and he was one of the very few MCs at the time that could scraddle that border and like Peter Pan, you know, he was what, one of the MCs that could do that, he came up there same thing happened, we opened the side door and he come in and the crowd was going for it, he'd been paid in advance he never experienced anything like that, and <laughs> After his first performance, he just he just, it, it it could see he wanted to be a resident. You know, we'd lost Majika by that time. Um, he just fitted in nicely. It wasn't a, it was no plan to get rid of Majika and put MCMC there. It was just it happened. You know what I mean? It just it was happened. We went out of our way to get him, and he was a diamond. Really, he was like, in um, um, because promoters up north was much different. You know, than the southern promoters, it was a very hellish idea down there. Uh, promoters down in the south, there was, into, but promoters up north helped each other. That's why we could do these multi-arena events. We'd all come together to put the event on. Um, I was prolific in helping other promoters get their tape packs out, for instance, and stuff. So we all worked together. We all spoke to each other. We wouldn't make sure our events collided with each other. It's a different vibe up north to what it was. Down, down south, basically. Mm. Uh, um,
0: and and in terms of issues that you've had, you have you, alluded some issues that you had with authorities. Um, what what sort what sort of stuff were you facing from the authorities? Because obviously, you know, it's a working men's, particularly the start working men's club. No alcohol. We all know what's going on.
1: The- the reality of it is they were still fighting in the town centre. There was no trouble at this venue. It was just that there might have been drugs there, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was trying to close us down. We had got a licence. They couldn't take us off it. It was in a whole new ball game for them. They, They would try and get in as non-members to try and close us down that way. Once that didn't work because we had a strict policy if and you know, and once we realised they was trying to get in as our members to try and close us down that way, we just got the dormant to up the game. So if you came with people and you as a member, you was asked who your guests were, and you had to tell us the guest You your guest names and the guests had to produce some instructions, you know, a driving licence or a passport to prove there was the people there was. If they didn't get it right, they didn't come in. We were strict on that. We knew that the authorities was trying to get in, and then you'd have the fire brigade coming and doing an inspections. So we ripped everything out, so there was no nothing could go wrong there. Um, it was every tactic in the book, from from yeah, and more so at Fantasy Island, really. Fantasy Island, they even came in and they measured the temperature of the and water. You know what I mean? It had to be a certain. When, I, when I went in two
0: thousand and two, they'd have measured the temperature of the tap water, they didn't. They needed a fucking sledgehammer. It was freezing. It, it was so cold. I think it was the yeah. coldest. Person. It was the coldest place in the UK on that night. And we decided to go there it was snowed outside. Uh, it was freezing when we got in because it was heated by body heat, and then it was freezing at the end when the people had gone home and we were stuck in there till the end. So.
1: uh <laughs> I came out that event at the night and it, oh, it was it was freezing. And we we promoted that event as it's going to be a lot warmer because you know in big warehouses it was freezing. We got blowers in and everything like that in every room. We got it oh, was let, me warmer, t- let
0: me let me tell you, Gary. But it was, like, it cold was it,
1: By two o'clock, by twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, it was freezing, wasn't it? And you <laughs> know, people were tussled around these uh, uh, eaters and everything. I come out at like eight o'clock in the morning and kicked a bottle of water and it was just a solid brick and then it <laughs> broke my foot. <port. laughs> I had to
0: get a lift back to the station, just blag a lift back to the station and we were sliding all over these little sort of country <laughs> lanes as we got back. To the, it, was, it was really dangerous. Um, and, and, and Richard Wyatt, one of our listeners, and by the way if anybody wants to get in touch with us uh, to ask any questions for future guests, you can do hello at the 90s rave podcast.co.uk and we're all on all of your social medias, Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, but Richard Wyatt asks, did you ever have an any problem with with gangsters or local heavies
1: i think in the early days when venue 44 started there was definitely um gangs trying to own the territory you know what i mean so that was stamped out i think by the the, the pre-owners of the venue to be honest uh, and I think every club experienced that. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a market that was taken. I mean, for instance, the glass at Venue 44 was all bulletproof. So the, the people that set Venue 44 was aware that it was going to... What, in Mansfield? It was bulletproof glass, yeah. Bulletproof perfect, actually. Wow. So, you know, they they must have had some experience from that side of things way before I did. Um, There was rumours about, you know, and there was always the chance that, you know, someone trying to become your friend, you thought they was a raver, but they had alternative methods to try and get in your venue. They was trying to earn money out of you. They wasn't coming for the music. You had to sort of rule that out, you know, it was, like I say, from being a raver to a promoter, it was a completely different mindset, completely.
0: Well, that's it from another episode of Raw. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. We're now an all-video platform, so if you're listening on audio, please do check out our YouTube page for this episode filmed, plus loads more besides. And you can also find us on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Just search for Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Plus, if you can spare just a few quid to help us continue making more great 90s rave content and hopefully keeping a smile on your face at a difficult time, you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s. Ray Podcast. All donations will be ploughed back into the podcast, including expenses to get around the country interviewing some of your Ray favourites and also improving our equipment.